and welcome to Decades on Dirt Roads. This is Catherine. And this is Maddie. And we were so fortunate to be able to visit with Penninger. Uh, he welcomed us into his home, uh, into his really cool shop, um, which uh, we could we could talk for, for days and days of all the stories that are there. I think he... He really poetically put it there at the end of our of our conversation, whether it was recorded or not, or just in our conversation post-interview. But, you know, he's he's an avid outdoorsman and hunter and um, a great biologist in his career. But the beauty of his shop and, and the taxidermy and his creative outlets is he can sit and he can tell you all the details um, from the coolest shot he's ever been a part of to the snacks that he shared with his kids on all those hunts. And so it's not it's not just taxidermy on the walls, but it was really a, a cool way to share a lot of a lot of memories and, and walking down memory lane with him was really special in that setting. So we'll get into it. Yeah. Hey, just a heads up for those who are listening with families. Um, there are three to five swear words that are unbleeped in this episode. Okay. Let's see. I'm Mark Penninger, recently, fairly recently retired from 33 years of federal service. I was a wildlife biologist with a few stints of fisheries and a short detail in public relations or public affairs uh, for the Forest Service for 30 years. And then my last three, I jumped ship and moved to the Fish and Wildlife Service, the LeGrand Field Office, and finished out my 30 years of permanent time. And retired at the end of April 2022. Dang. So in in that short little blurb, we'll kind of go into maybe a recap of, of where you started and maybe how you got into into the Forest Service and into outdoor career, if that starts with you as a kid or however that looks. Yeah, I won't bore you with much of my childhood stuff, but I grew up in the east, uh, in North Carolina, in a fairly rural, rural area with lots of dairy farms and undeveloped uh, mixed hardwood forest and uh, it was in the Piedmont of North Carolina near Charlotte which is the biggest city mm-hmm. but I was out of way out of the city limits and um, so I grew up hunting and fishing mainly small game for the hunting because we really didn't have deer in that part of the state then um, since then it's interesting how deer have completely populated that Piedmont area yeah um, and then uh I did some trapping for furs to make money when I was in high school, in junior high school. Um, Then I went to Brevard College and got an associate's in general studies because I had no idea what I wanted to do and (laughs) transferred to NC State with my sights set on uh, being a veterinarian possibly. And after a year or year and a half, um, I worked for an animal hospital during that time and I realized that I didn't think I wanted to make a career of dealing with irresponsible pet owners. Really, a lot of the clients had no business having cats or dogs. Um, and God forbid, some of them had children. But uh, Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I think that happens to a lot of people going into vet science because they're like, oh, I love animals. And then you realize that you still got to deal with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's heartbreaking because... If a veterinarian treated everything with their heart, they would go bankrupt really quickly. Totally. Because everything cost. Even just to euthanize an animal, that cost. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you the number of people that came into the animal hospital with an injured animal and said, this thing got hit by a car a week ago. What can you do for 50 bucks? You know, or oh. 
can you just can we just leave it with you because we don't want it anymore you know and we'd have to say i'm sorry uh, we can't do anything for 50 bucks and they walk out the door with it and you knew that animal was going to suffer and either die or you know broken bones and internal injuries were going to heal poorly and that was just heartbreaking and then a lot of the work was mundane not very exciting like treating uh flea allergies and given vaccines, mm-hmm. uh, one of the veterinarians I worked for, he said, he went to veterinary school in Al- at Auburn, I believe, and he said one of his professors said you should uh, erect a, a monument to the flea in your front yard <laughs> if, if you're gonna if you're gonna practice in the southeast yeah. because you will treat flea allergies, you know, day Every in day. and day out, and oh. that's what's gonna pay your bills. And, uh, the exciting things were when you'd get a gunshot or uh, some type of accident, vehicle accident. You know, it's sad for the animal, but it's exciting because you got to figure everything out. And, yeah, you got to problem solve. Yeah, and the two veterinarians I worked for knew that they that I, that's what I wanted to do, so they were really good about letting me shadow them, and they brought me into everything and would quiz me and question me and say, what do you think, and what do you see on this x-ray? And they taught me so many things. Um and I'll always be thankful for what I learned from those guys. But at some point, I decided I don't think I want to do this. And I discovered the Fisheries and Wildlife Program, which was part of the zoology department in uh, at NC State. So I switched majors. And all my prerequisites that were animal science, mammalogy, those type of things transferred oh, nice. you know, as advised electives. Um, so I really didn't lose credit or anything. And then... Uh, in my last year, uh, I was learning more about the Pacific Northwest, the old growth and spotted owl controversy, because yeah. it was big time in the news in the late 80s. And I just got a wild hair that I wanted to see these giant say, old what, growth forests. <laughs> what made you come west? Because that's, that's a big move from the south and being in the Carolinas to yeah. the vastness of wildlife and everything that the Pacific Northwest has well, to offer. Well, since, a, since childhood, I would read uh, magazines, Field and Stream, Sports of Field, those type of magazines that had stories about Western hunts and Alaska hunts and African hunts. And I thought, man, that's the life. That's yeah. adventure. I want to experience that. And then when I got into the work and thought, you know, this kind of work, there's opportunities in those same settings. Um, maybe I can move out there and try it. So a, a good friend of my, of a, a mutual friend of mine back east who actually, uh, her friend lived in Eugene, Oregon, with, and worked for the Forest Service. Um, Pat Pat Greenlee at the time. Now her name is Pat Ormsby. Um, she was the a biologist for the Willamette National Forest. And our mutual friend, when she found out that what I was majoring in, we I think we had several beers that night. She <laughs> says, "I need to hook you up with my friend out there." And next thing you know, she's like, "Come here, someone on the phone wants to talk to you." <laughs> So, I put you in the spot there. Oh, yeah. I was on the spot. And uh, Pat and I talked for quite a long time. And uh, she said, well, there's job opportunities. The spotted owl is blowing up out here. And Forest Service does not have technicians and biologists that we need. So we're going to be filling a lot of positions. Yeah. Yeah. You should apply. And so she gave me briefly where to look. So uh, I ended up applying. And a few few months later, when I graduated, I landed a 180-day temporary appointment on the Detroit Ranger District of the Willamette National Forest. Good on you. So that's the most northern district, uh, butts up against the Mount Hood, mm-hmm. and it's about 50 miles uh, east of Salem, up in the Cascades, west slope of the Cascades. And uh, so I moved out right out of college by myself, and um, 
I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> but it was exciting. No one does right out of college. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I gotta ask, what was that application process like? I can hardly remember. That's been thirty-five years ago. <laughs> it wasn't. Easy. We did a. Uh, oh, what was it called? A SF. Just like a SF fifty-two paper to mail in. Yeah, you could print it off on the internet from the internet and fill it out and mail it in. Wow. I can't, I, you might have could have emailed it. I can't remember. Back then, they probably needed a pen and ink signature. I just don't remember. It's been that long. But it was a particular form that was in was in the works for years and years, you know, before it changed. But I hardly remember. I just I remember I applied for a few and ended up, ended up landing that one. And I was so scared. I almost didn't come. My sister's like, buck up. You applied. <laughs> Don't get, don't get turned into a wuss now. Just go. You yeah. Know, you'll never regret it or you, you will not regret going out there. Yeah. So she was right as usual. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So I came out and, um, did three years as a temporary, but continual, continuous working. I didn't have any break in service for those mm-hmm. first three years. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the not to exceed type of appointment mm-hmm. with the forest service. They call yeah. it an NTE. Uh-huh. So it'd be an NTE one year appointment. And when that one year was up, if funding wasn't there or your performance mm-hmm. wasn't up, that for any reason they could say your position's done. Yeah. Or at that time, I really believe the agency was abusing those type of, of appointments because I know people that were on an NTE for ten or fifteen years, yeah. not building retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Forest Service was using them like a permanent employee. Yeah. They were getting the work done that they needed done, but they were not you know, paying for the benefits and everything and the secure job security for an employee in the position they should have been. Do you think that kind of came out of like the new era, the biologist? Like when we talked to the Hunsakers, it was like the 80s was the ologist. It was starting to come into that and they didn't know how to fully staff those or create those positions. Or was uh, no, it... I think that would be giving too much credit to the agency. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a, I think management in the agency saw that we can save a lot of money by not paying benefits. Mm-hmm. and Because it wasn't just ologists. It was civil culture techs. It was timber techs. It was mm-hmm. fire techs. It was all the different disciplines. A lot of them were on these longer-term NTEs. Now, the ologists were often worked 12 months out of the year, mm-hmm. whereas the fire folks or timber markers would, would sometimes have you know, the seasonal work. And then when they're done, they have the winter off to go play in Mexico or ski or whatever they want to do. Yeah. And some of them chose to do that. They didn't want a permanent full-time job. Mm-hmm. Others were like, I really would rather have a permanent, but this is what the agency's giving me right now. Mm-hmm. So, no, I don't think it was a, a matter of them not understanding. I think it's like, this is a loophole. We can get a lot of work done for yeah. a lot less money. Um, but it was the employee who really suffered because they were not putting money into a retirement plan. Yeah. Gotcha. You know, or didn't have health insurance and all that at the, for those years. Gotcha. So, but yeah... Um, there were that was during the era when uh, a lot of ologists were being hired, and I I was fortunate to be in that to come onto the market at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way I was unfortunate was it was kind of on the tails of the consent decree in California, where um, that region could basically only hire women for for a while because how they were discriminating against women for so long, and yeah. the agency lost the lawsuit. Um, but some of that trickled over. So, you know, I probably applied for 20 different jobs that I was well qualified for. 
and got passed over for. But he eventually landed one, mm-hmm. a permanent after three years on the on the Malheur National Forest. Um, yeah, so my first permanent was in John Day uh, in 1992 on the Bear Valley Ranger District. Since then, that district's been combined with Long Creek. I think it's just those two that are now the Blue Mountain Ranger District, mm-hmm. which is the north part of that, that forest. And I did fisheries and wildlife, mostly wildlife, in that job. And uh, eventually, uh, our, my wife at the time, Teresa, she had a job with ODOT. And she was in Salem working at the airport in the aviation division of ODOT. And I was in John Day, so weekends we'd go we'd visit each other. And that got old after a while. So I we wanted imagine. to live in the same place. <laughs> yeah. So she said, what if I get a job in Legrand? Could you get a job up there? And I was like, I could sure try. So she landed a job with ODOT here. And within six months, I ended up getting a fisheries job here at Legrand Ranger District. And I mean, I was tickled to get one that quickly. I thought it was going to take a long time. Yeah. The forest supervisor on the mall here at the time was Mark Bakke. I didn't know him well, but I knew him well enough, and he knew me and my reputation for getting work done. And later I found out that when he heard I was in for the job, he called the force supervisor over here and said, you hire this guy. He's we hate new. to lose him, but pick him up. Yeah. And that's kind of the way things work in the agency, and yeah. I guess in lots of industries. But mm-hmm. um, I was really touched later to find that out. And, uh, that's awesome. Because I had no idea he was going to speak up on my behalf. So I moved here, and I was in fisheries for about a year and a half, and uh, then a wildlife position opened up on the district, and that's really where my heart was. So I ended up switching back to back to wildlife. Uh, over the years, I did still have some fisheries work here and there, mm-hmm. but the rest of my career, I worked out of Legrand, uh, 15 years on Legrand Ranger District, and then um, the forest wildlife biologist position opened out of Baker, um, technically the name for that is the forest wildlife program manager. Mm-hmm. Um, so that position oversees the wildlife program on the forest. They set the technical standards. They make sure the forest leadership team is aware of upcoming issues, changes in laws and policy re- regarding wildlife. They manage the budget. Uh, they build relationships with the district rangers to make sure that they set the priorities for the biologists on the district's work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't supervise biologists, and I didn't set their priorities. It was up for me to convey that to the district rangers, and um, they decided with what their bios were going to do. But it worked. It was pretty effective. Um, I worked with some good rangers during that time. So before that, were you more hands-on in the field, like an actual? Yeah, a lot of my... And actually, I was kind of recognized as someone who never left the field very much because even when I got in that job, um, my philosophy was the closer you are to the field, the more effective biologist you can be. Totally, yeah. And um, a lot of my counterparts on other forests uh, ended up spending way more time at their desk. Um, I forced it and said, um, I'm going to go out, I'm going to be on the districts and go out with my bios, um, not to make sure they're doing things right, but just to show them my support and that I understood what they're doing so I could convey that to their district rangers and their natural resource staff folks on the districts. And um, I also believe that being in the field, there's no substitute for having been there, kind of builds your street creds. And when you're you're in a public meeting and uh, you're trying to speak to a particular area and you say, "I, 
I modeled this in GIS and it looks like this. You know, mm -hmm. that's one thing. But to say I walked every inch of it with with my civil culturist and we made these observations and this is why we think we should be doing this here. You automatically have credibility with yeah. with your audience. You get better buy-in. I saw that over and over and over. And I would pass that message on to the forest leadership team, how important it is for the for uh, the districts to allow their bios to do the field work they needed to do. And I really didn't ask permission. I just did it. Yeah. I was one. I was going to ask for forgiveness. <laughs> I will forgiveness. not be held in this office. No. <laughs> I was always one to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Uh, but I knew what my priorities were, and I wasn't playing. I was working. Um, and a lot of folks it, within and outside of the agency feel like wildlife work because you're you're out there surveying for animals. You're counting birds. You're surveying for bumblebees. You're you know all the picking up scat. Uh, it's like that sounds like it's play or that's fun work my work's not fun I have to sit behind a desk and write or whatever or crunch numbers yeah. it's like well there might be a fun aspect to it but it's necessary and you're collecting data that's going to keep decision makers out of trouble Certainly. Um, and you're going to stay ahead of issues as they start to develop uh, things like uh, Northern Goshawk is a good example I knew just through my contacts, uh, through my professional contacts, that Northern Goshawk was one that there was going to be very controversial in the East Side Forest, and so we surveyed the heck out of timber cell areas using uh, broadcast callers and searching during the proper time of year, and we would document nest and then go back out and document alternate nest and map nest areas and post fledgling areas, and uh, so then when the uh, east side forest screens came about which is a, a big forest plan amendment mm -hmm. that, that basically changed the management of the east side forest a lot it had a, a section in there specific to goshawks and it said you will protect known uh, active goshawk nests and post-fledgling areas and this is how you'll do that our forest was was already set we know where all our nests are in every one of our active timber cells a lot of forests had not done anything with goshawks and it's like, oh my God, what are we going to do? We've got to hire a bunch of technicians and start looking. Well, they already had timber sales under contract and some already being logged. And so that was a good example of how you try to jump out. But I had to convince leadership, this is, I promise you, this is something that's going to blow up on us if we're not ready. Yeah. We need to position ourselves so we're not responding to it. Yeah. And uh, so that's just one example. I could probably give several throughout my career. But that, I saw that as one of my roles as a forest wildlife program manager to know what those issues are and bring them up to the right people at the right time. Totally. And set a tone with that preparation because on one hand, the, the preemptive planning of that isn't really going to affect a ton of things. But if you don't take care of it, the downstream effects of that are going to affect a lot of different entities that then are going to get pretty fired up that, well, you aren't doing your job. It's like, okay, hey, I yeah. I came with this plan. I tried to do this stuff, but nobody yeah. gave me nobody gave me to go. So sometimes you just got to be a doer, and like yeah. you said, ask for forgiveness later. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know how we got down that rabbit hole, but uh, that's okay. I was working my way through my timeline. Uh, so uh, I think I'd gotten to how I, I made it to the Willow Whitman National Forest and, in fisheries, and switched <clears throat> back into wildlife. Fifteen years on the district. Um, and this was a great district to work on. We had a great planning team, uh, really good dynamics between us, uh, and some good rangers. Kurt Weideman 
was one of the long longer term rangers here and I consider him a mentor, someone I respect greatly. He just had a great balance of resource, knowledge, and people skills. And he was honest. If he if he wasn't going to take my recommendations, he would bring me into his office and explain why. But usually I was able to lay out a good enough case to him that he's like, you know, Mark, I can't say no yeah, to that. I can't say no to Mark when he's disorganized. <laughs> when, you, when you present it like that. <laughs> I can look good. I can meet my target. Yeah. I can make these both the sides of this issue happy. How can I say no to that? Yeah, you're helping out. This so, <laughs> yeah. So rarely did he say, you know, I just I can't. We can't do this for wildlife this time because you know. But um, I really enjoyed working for Kurt. And then when my predecessor at the supervisor's office retired, his his name was Tim Schomer. He had a unique position where he was the forest uh, program wildlife program manager and the national bighorn sheep biologist. So there was a program called the the Full Curl Program, and there were two positions for it nationally, and they were funded off the top in Washington, D.C., kind of. I guess the money went to the regions, but they knew a certain amount of that money was earmarked for the Full Curl Program. And um, the reason it existed during that time, there was a a longstanding problems with domestic sheep allotments on federal lands, and these sheep carried diseases. At the time, we didn't know exactly what they were. We knew a few of them that uh, those old world sheep that came over from Europe evolved with these with these pathogens, and they could live with them unharmed. Um, but when they get exposed to bighorn sheep, our wild sheep, who are newer world sheep, um, they were naive to these pathogens, and they would start dropping like flies. You'd have old age die-offs from pneumonia. They would start coughing. Oh, uh, everything from the biggest, strongest males to the youngest uh, uh, lambs would die. And you could lose 80 or 90% of your herd in just a few months. Oh, my gosh. And this is a species that was completely extirpated from Oregon. They were gone. Every last bighorn was gone from Oregon and Washington and large parts of Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado. There were some isolated pockets in Wyoming, Montana, Idaho that existed, that never were extirpated. That made those genetics really valuable. Uh, but it was through sportsmen's uh, efforts, yeah. groups like the Wild Sheep <clears throat> Foundation, uh, partnering with tribes and state agencies and Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management and all that were started moving sheep around, started going to where there were healthy populations in Canada or some of those uh, ones I just mentioned, and relocating sheep into back into former places mm-hmm. they used to live, mm-hmm. and then they would die again. And um, it was it cost a lot of money to catch sheep with a helicopter yeah. and uh, transport them and keep them alive and healthy, and then they go and die on you again. And uh, so because of that, and we, and we did start to see that the commonality was anywhere you had domestic sheep sharing range with wild sheep the wild sheep died it was a no-go we didn't know exactly why but we knew that was something was was happening there so because of that that full curl program uh, came about and melanie woolever she's in she's worked in uh, colorado she was kind of the policy level national level biologist for that and then tim Schomer, my predecessor in baker he was the kind of the field biologist that did went out on the captures with the different states and coordinated with uh, state biologists and tribal biologists and 
was a member of the Bighorn Sheep Working Group uh, that would meet once a year, you know, go over the latest science, etc. And um, when he retired, he's, he told me before he retired, he said, I want you to have my job, both parts of it. And he said, I can't think of anyone else that I'd rather be in it because I know you have a passion for this kind of thing and you're here and you're ready and uh, you've been in the same place for 15 years. And, I, you know, I was always one, I was never in a hurry to leave. I wanted to do the job that I was in the best mm-hmm. I could. Yeah. And I was not focused on the next promotion. And I had friends and colleagues that were like three years here, two years there, and boom, boom, boom. Have their Five, lines. seven, nine, <laughs> 11, 12, 13. Next thing I know, they're a forest supervisor somewhere. I'm like, holy crap. Yeah. I've been sitting here <laughs> busting my ass in one place for 15 years. I should have been thinking about my career more. <laughs> but uh, yes, I'm not complaining. Um, I like the way I did it because um, I got to see things change and heal and recover. Yeah. And I got to own my mistakes and own my victories and... You got to see multiple growth cycles through that. Um, Even though 15 years is a blip in forest growth, um, especially here on the east side. But anyway, um, when he retired, um, I did manage to fall into those roles. And so for the next 10 years, I I did both. uh, Worked with the bighorn sheep west-wide and served as a forest wildlife biologist. And in addition to that, the region, region six of, of the Forest Service, which is Oregon and Washington, they have these, uh, or at least they used to have these positions called uh, centers of excellence. There was one for migratory birds. There's one for upland game birds, um, various things, uh, invertebrates, you name it. And yeah. uh, the regional office would find a biologist that had a particular skill set and interest in that you know, in that species or group of species and funnel a little bit of money off the top for them to do specifically, to be the contact for the region. So I became the the bighorn sheep, or not bighorn sheep, excuse me, uh, mountain goat contact or spe- uh, center of excellence for region six. So anytime a forest had issues with goats you and, the guy. and their biologist, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know what I don't know much about goats. I'm working with spotted owls most of the time, yeah. like on the Olympic Peninsula or something. They'd call me, and I would share my skills with them or go to that forest and help them with whatever they were doing. That's pretty cool. Um, so I did that in addition to the sheep work for about 10 years. And then uh, in uh, late or mid-2019, um, a friend and colleague of mine, Marissa Meyer, she's she's the field field office supervisor for Fish and Wildlife Service here. Her, her husband, Steve Meyer, you may know him. He works in fire at ODF in Sounds Baker. Really yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, they, uh, she, she basically called me and said, I got a job for you if you want it. Uh, and I think she knew somehow that the Blue Mountain Forest Plan Revision had just crashed and burned, mm-hmm. mainly for political reasons. Not only for political reasons, but that's another story. Yeah. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> um, but, uh, and the for- this forest continued to drag its feet on developing a travel management plan. The Malheur and the Wallow Whitman, and I think maybe one forest in Washington, were the only three in the entire country that had not met that travel management rule of 2005. And what? That mandated uh, every forest to establish a travel management plan. Basically, you would identify every road and trail route and area that allowed uh, motorized travel. 
and what areas did not allow motorized travel, which areas, roads, trails, you couldn't use motorized on. And every other forest did a plan except these three. Gotcha. And to me, it was kind of embarrassing because a lot of the constituents I dealt with, motorized access was a big thing. Mm -hmm. Whether it was disturbance that led to poor distribution of elk on the landscape or uh, erosion or spread of noxious weeds or all the negative things that come with having rampant motorized access mm-hmm. um, they were concerned about that and and I had to be the voice to make excuses for this forest leadership of why we couldn't get off our asses and do a travel management plan gotcha. within the 15 year timeline is it was a long time yeah. and most forests did it within the first five years or mm-hmm. so you know and this is what, 2005 look where we're at now yeah. Yeah. and this forest still doesn't have one mm. And so I think Marissa knew I was frustrated with that. And then when the forest plan crashed and burned, uh, and then she knew I was commuting 43 miles one way, you know, every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was getting close to retirement time. She's like, what if we got you a position, would lateral you in same pay level and everything. So it wouldn't be a raise, but you wouldn't have all that commuting time or the gas, no supervision, an easier budget process. You'd work with private landowners uh, doing restoration on their land. That would be a big part of your job. And you could stay in the field. And I was like, let me think about it for a couple of days. <laughs> it didn't take long for me to say, why would I not do it? I think I would be When stupid. you put it like that. Yeah, yeah. sign me up. Um, but, you know, other considerations for our <clears throat> this place I have here. I've got 10 acres one mile from the edge of town of Lagrand, And this morning... As I was sitting in my hot tub, I had 150 elk to trail right up behind my house, and I got to watch them while I'm having my coffee. And there's no place that I know of I can afford to buy and have this same setting, this convenient. I feel like I'm 20 miles out of town, but I'm only a mile out of town. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of wildlife here. I got room for my horse. I got room to work my dog. I have room for my archery range. So it was a very personal decision to not want to leave for a promotion. And that's my choice. Totally. Uh, if, if I wanted to make more money, I could have sold this place and moved and got a job right. elsewhere. But I chose not to. And when Marissa offered that Fish and Wildlife Service position to me, well, that sounds like a great end-of-my-career type position. Yeah. yeah. And so I took it. And it was weird at that age being the new guy, um, getting broke into the whole new uh, agency culture, yeah. processes, people... Um, but it wasn't that difficult. Uh, one thing I really liked about the change was, you know, with the Forest Service, I was the wildlife biologist. So I, when I was on an interdisciplinary team with a bunch of other specialists, I was the voice for wildlife. And oftentimes I would have to explain and uh, debate and sometimes argue with civil culturists, range folks, botanists, archaeologists, whatever, why why we need should do something for wildlife. Mm-hmm. When I went to Fish and Wildlife Service, everyone in that agency is working for Fish and Wildlife in one capacity or another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some really outstanding, world-class biologists that work for that agency. And uh, so I was honored to be a part of that. Uh, they're really good at what they do. Um, and it was kind of, it was an easy switch. And then a lot of the relationships I've built in the sheep world and working with elk with the Forest Service, I carried over into that next job. Totally. Because a part of that next job was a little unique and 
I was the uh, liaison between the Department of Interior and the states of Oregon and Washington for a secretarial order. It was Secretarial Order 3362, which basically said um, all, all bureaus and departments of the Department of Interior would, uh, would enhance and improve and conserve winter ranges and migration corridors and stopover areas for mule deer, elk, and pronghorn antelope in the western states, in 14 western states. So that, that secretarial order was very specific to those species in the 14 western states. And I was the contact between the feds and the states of Oregon and Washington. So my role was to uh, review their state action plans where they identified um, where these migration corridors were. And I, I would get them money to put radio collars out on animals so they could figure out where these were. Um, and then after a couple years of, of research, figuring out uh, the important migration corridors and all for, for these species, then I would get a money to do habitat restoration in, at those sites. Gotcha. Sometimes it was removing fences, sometimes it was thinning, uh, or building new fences that were wildlife friendly, uh, fencing in, associated, uh, in association with underpasses along Highway 97 south of Bend mm -hmm. was one of them. Um, all this work uh, to improve conditions for those three species on their winter ranges and migration routes. And so a lot of the biologists I worked for in that capacity, I already knew and had great working relationships with from the Forest Service. Yeah. So that made that part really easy. That's pretty cool to have built that reputation. And yes, you're going into a new agency and stuff, but the reputation and the work like you talked earlier in our conversation of you've been to those places, you've gotten the buy-in that obviously organically translated to a new position and a new place. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was kind of unique with the Fish and Wildlife Service because most people think of that agency as uh, either managing refuges, National Wildlife Refuge System, mm -hmm. or the Ecological Services Branch that does uh, basically enforces the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, Bald and Golden Eagle Management Act, Marine Mammals Protection Act, Inv uh, Endangered Species Act, all those type of things. So you think about it as more of a regulatory, and where do deer and elk and pronghorn come in? It usually doesn't. So that was kind of unique, that the secretarial order specific to the Department of Interior, which Fish and Wildlife Service is part of, um, that I got to work with three great game species that, that I've always enjoyed and uh, I think are fascinating, that that agency generally doesn't deal much with. So it was kind of a unique position. And uh, after three years of that, I realized I was coming up on my 30 years of permanent service, and I'd already met the minimum retirement age of 56 and a half, we're right in there. And for, for different personal reasons, I decided I should retire. Um, I love to work. But I didn't love changing passwords yeah. to get into my this, computer. This comes up a lot. You'd be surprised. Uh, <laughs> Mandatory trainings. AgLearn. Oh, my God. Oh. We didn't have AgLearn with Fish and Wildlife Service, but similar. We had similar yeah, things. Yeah, you had something that you just kept on pressing next, 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 next. Oh, take the test. <laughs> Some of those were harder than they seemed. Like yeah, you probably had to find a buddy to take you, them with. If you had to jump right to the end, like uh, you could like test test through so you didn't have to mm -hmm. do the training. No, I screwed that up sometimes. So <laughs> You're not third alone. time through, it was like I should have just read the damn <laughs> test instead. Of, but early on, uh, I was 
I was kind of a butthead about those things, and I dug my heels in and realized, I, eventually I realized, I'm going to lose this battle. So I changed my whole approach to it, and life became easier. As soon as that first message came out, I would drop. If I could, I'd drop everything and I'd do it. Yeah. Or I'd come in early the next day or stay late the next day, and I'd do that son of a bitch. And <laughs> four months from then, when everyone else is, God dang it, i got to take that training, or they're going to shut me out of a computer. I was like... I did mine <laughs> right out of the gate. I'm clean. And so it was easier that way. But I don't miss that kind of crap that came with the bureaucracy. Yeah, um, that's fair. That's a fair thing not to miss as a biologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in your uh, Northwest Nature interview you did, about this time last year, you said you weren't doing any interviews, any service, anything like that for a whole year. Did you hold yourself to that? Almost. Yeah. I basically said I wasn't going to accept any work or mm-hmm. volunteer work for a year. And um, the only thing I did really was, um, I guess there were two things. One was um, I got asked by the Depar- Oregon Department of Justice to be an expert witness for a trial that dealt with some derelict poacher that uh, whose son illegally killed an elk mm. in the wrong unit, wrong weapon, uh, didn't have a tag for that unit. Oh my! It, it was an archery season. Did it with a rifle, but the case got dismissed, even though DNA evidence had the antlers, the cape, and the meat in these people's possession. OSP went and found the carcass on in the wrong unit. The DNA matched it with the animal. The local DA in Legrand botched the case and dismissed it without prejudice. And uh, unfortunately, the officer involved uh, had a very untimely death a few years later. So his colleagues had to pick things up where he left off. And um, But it was a dead case because it was dismissed. Well, fast forward a few years, and this dude comes back and says, I want the state to reimburse me for the value of those trophy antlers since I wasn't prosecuted. Uh, unfortunately, the DA at the time had no hunting experience, no understanding of hunting, um, and gave the wrong dates for when this crime supposedly happened. Mm. And the judge tried to say, you can change the dates to the correct ones right now and correct this thing. And she didn't get the message and just like, I dismiss. And so OSP was just livid about it and... Anyway, yeah, this guy had the guts to come back and try to demand like $15,000 for this trophy (laughs) rack. So uh, the the, uh, Department of Justice contacted the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation in Missoula, said this is what we're looking for, these skills of someone who understands hunting, knows how to score an elk rack, understands legalities of possessing an elk rack in Oregon, understands trophy value, monetary value, etc., record book value, and they gave him my name. They said, Penninger, that lives in Legrand, right where you're going to try this case, is your guy. So they called me, and I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know. I said I wasn't going to do anything for a year. you got to do this one now. <laughs> Come on now. Well, I, I told him, I said, I didn't want to accept it without understanding the whole case. I didn't want to end up in an awkward position where I didn't, I was supporting the side that I really didn't believe. Sure. But once they told me the story, I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. What do I have to lose here? Yeah. I'm going to embarrass this person and his attorney. Yeah. And so uh, I took it. They paid me by the hour, my going, my rate, 
I should have given a much higher rate, by the way. Um, I felt like a little bit like a biostitute, but that was okay. I made some extra beer money. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I did some homework. I researched uh, like what the value of uh, shed antlers are by pound, mm-hmm. uh, what a trophy rack would go on the open market if it were legal to sell mm-hmm. it. I went through the state administrative rules, so I knew I had a good, refreshed understanding of what it means to lawfully possess an elk rack in Oregon, whether it's a set of shed antlers or still attached to the skull plate, because mm-hmm. it's totally different. Yeah. And um, I went in there with nothing to lose. I was like, It's a good if, place to be. If their attorney makes me look like a fool, oh, well, I'll walk out of there and feel yeah. like a fool. But uh, that wasn't the case. And I think we did embarrass the, not just the, uh, the, the guy, the poacher and his son, but the, the attorney yeah. who asked some really stupid questions. And uh, I made sure, I, I, uh, I was very um, diplomatic about it, but I did point out how stupid the questions were and, and gave them answers to the questions they should have been answered, asking to start with. But anyway, that was kind of fun. And it was just literally a couple of days worth of work. And then I agreed to be on an anti-poaching committee uh, that the state of Oregon put together. I was represent the Oregon chapter of the Wildlife Society, which is a professional society. And so I sit on that committee still, and I have for like the last year, two years. Actually, I did that before I even retired, and I carried that into retirement because it wasn't related to my job with Fish and Wildlife Service. It was with through my association with the Wildlife Society. Gotcha. But it's a very low uh, requirement of my time. Good. But otherwise, I have... Uh, said no to lots of opportunities. Good on you. <laughs> the Umatilla asked me, they said, well, our forest wildlife biologist position is vacant. You think about coming out of retirement? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> no way. I'm at home in my man cave mm. doing taxidermy. I fishing and bird hunting and things to do. I'm not, yeah, enjoying retirement. Yeah. But so. that's a pretty cool, I mean... An unfortunate situation, but to use to use your hunting cap and to use your biologist hat and hat and go to bat for that would be that's that's a pretty interesting and unique. It, it was actually because through most of my career, being a hunting hunter was not that directly applicable to the job. It, it really wasn't. Hmm. Um, you know, some of the questions that we that you sent me that we yeah. uh, that I looked over before this podcast. I thought about that a lot. Um, I think one thing, I think one of the questions was how, how, how has being a hunter benefited you as, as a biologist through your career? And to answer that, probably the only way that I could, is really kind of tangible was that I understood the lingo of that constituent and Forest Service users, people who use National Forest System lands, there are a lot of them in the West are hunters, especially Rocky Mountain and Mountain West Forest. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of deer and elk hunters and bear hunters and upland bird hunters and anglers. And uh, being someone who participates in all those things, seriously, not just weekend warrior type thing, yeah. I understood um, and could communicate with them pretty effectively. Um, or if they tried to blow smoke up my ass, I would also know that and yeah. call them out on it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think it benef- I benefited that way. But I think there's a lot of effective biologists that don't don't hunt or don't necessarily need to. Certainly. Um, yeah. 
Now, fisheries biologists, I'm always sus suspicious of a fish bio that doesn't fish. I just don't get that <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was telling Maddie. I was like, if I know fish biologists fish, but I know a lot of wildlife biologists that don't necessarily hunt. hunt. So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes that goes hand in hand, yeah. and sometimes it doesn't. Yep. Yep. You know. well, I know some really good fish bios. A lot of them do fish. A lot of them are very serious anglers. But I've known a few that's like, I don't like fishing. Huh. Like, what? Yeah. How can you not like fishing? How'd you get in this <laughs> field? You have all the fishing. insights. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's always been fun banter between fish and wildlife folks. Um, fish people are a little different, I think. <laughs> I'm glad you said it. I didn't have to say that. <laughs> I would always joke with them how your your resources is focused in 2% of the landscape. And you know they're going to be there. They're not going to wander off up to the ridge. And you can't find them. When you look for them, you look in the damn water. That's where they're going to be. That's a fair point. Wildlifers have the other 98% of the landscape. And God knows you're not going to know where those animals are going to be at yeah. any given time. So it's a much harder job. Yeah. Um, that's sure, what it's been I'm fun. sure they have a different argument for yeah. that. Because oh, yeah, I know. We've taken, so the ODFW hired, with some new legislation that passed, they hired a, a like, I, don't, I think she's for the region or something, a fish biologist. And we have taken her into some holes trying to get stuff verified, not verified, mm -hmm. you know, one way or the other, and this poor gal's carrying, she's tiny, and she's just carrying all her gear down there, and we're like, you need help? And she's like, oh, I got it. That's the, the ODF foresters taking her God knows where, and we're just like, oh, you, you poor thing. Oh, no. And all those guys are like six foot, 200 pounds, big guys, and you should just... <laughs> this gal and she's you know five three maybe she's tiny and mighty she's forestry size you know it doesn't have to bend down yeah i gotta give fisheries folks credit though when they do their professional meetings and parties they know how to do it right they get <laughs> lots and lots of donated beer more than yeah. wildlifers do <laughs> and they get better donations for their raffles and all like fly rods and fishing trips and rafts and so they're really good at that. And, hmm. and truthfully, fishing, fish work is a lot of fun because streams, you know, the, just the beauty of, the, of streams and there's so much life associated with riparian area. And you got waterfalls and I, I love working in that, that part of the landscape. Totally. And so yeah, that maybe I'm a little bit jealous of fish. That's why I got to give them a little bit. Of yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I was really, as I was, as we were talking about, okay, what are we going to, what are we going to talk to Mark about? Um, listening to your Kodiak story, I really, and I had to tell you this, I really appreciated how you spoke to the respect that you had as a biologist going into that hunt. And we talked before we even started the podcast where Alaska, as um, in a goat hunt, a sheep hunt, and... Grizzly bear. Grizzly bear all have to be guided. Yeah. Um, you went into that goat hunt and obviously had to seek out a, a guide outfit, but the respect between that hunting outfitter and you as a hunter and your experience as a biologist, the way that that paired up, I really thought that that was, that was cool how you worded that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, just to backfill a little bit, Maddie's referring to the, a podcast I did about a mountain goat hunt I did with my recurve bow a few years back. And um, I had to hire a guide legally in Alaska. A non-resident has to have a guide for that species. And the guide I had has a really good reputation for being hardcore. He was a rescue swimmer with uh, Coast Guard and a legend at that. And toward the end of his career, he trained rescue swimmers. Wow. It's like the Navy SEALs of 
of uh, the Coast, Coast Guard. They just don't shoot people. They <laughs> rescue people. And, uh, you know, he's a physical specimen. He's strong, uh, mentally strong and physically strong. And um, he had never guided a traditional bow hunter before. But I think I was his 62nd or something uh, successful bow hunt, or excuse me, goat hunt. Um, he had had other people with compound bows and rifles that had killed goats with him before. But we did that hunt, and what I, what Maddie's mentioning there was he's very knowledgeable from a hunting aspect to how goats behave, how to identify a male from a female, a young billy from an old billy, etc. And I brought in several years of surveying for goats and going to professional meetings, learning about goats and moving goats around the landscape. So I came in from a more biological understanding uh, and a hunter. Mm -hmm. And our skills and our... Uh, interest just meshed so well so we had a lot to talk about and we both respected one another's uh skill set and knowledge and on the second to the last day of the hunt i ended up getting a goat at about four yards with my with my traditional bow four four yards and it was the the closest shot any of his clients had ever made um his first traditional archery client and unfortunately the longest fall Slide. Well, when that part of the podcast came up, I almost feet down. It, it was wincing for you. <laughs> and it wasn't one of these spots where you look at the landscape and say, if I shoot that thing and it dies, it's going to go that far. It just ran a little ways and then it laid down, then it kicked and it started sliding. Then it started somersaulting, cartwheeling. And then it hit a snow patch and it hit and took off and disappeared into the clouds below. And I had no idea how far it went. But yeah, so he, we laughed about how. I had those three records. His first traditional day, <laughs> closest closest shot, and longest fall. And so my goat got pretty beat up, but it was a very satisfying and challenging hunt and one of my favorite hunting memories of all. Totally. Yep. <laughs> um, going into, or kind of going back to you, you being a, a point person for a lot of different committees as far as goats and sheep go, I'm, I'm sure you were a part of a lot of different captures. Um, or not, but can you speak to some highlighting, highlighted moments of like really cool, like, oh my gosh, this is what it means to be a biologist in the Pacific Northwest. Oh God. Every goat and sheep capture I was on, I had that feeling because as a forest service biologist, you're mainly a habitat biologist and you, most positions in that agency don't get to handle wildlife unless you're catching bumblebees or you're sampling some small mammal or you know, or banding birds or something. Mm -hmm. Most of your work is measuring habitat and photographing habitat and surveying habitat and surveying for species. If you hear them, you see them, you document them, you know, you're done. You don't ever have to put your hands on them. Uh, bats is one we used to handle a lot in the Forest Service. But, so, but through my relationships with the state, with my state counterparts and my roles on the, like the Blue Mountain Elk Initiative, the, uh, Hell's Canyon Bighorn Sheep Restoration Committee, um, being the goat contact, all those roles gave me a really unique opportunity to be invited to and go to a lot more things. And that was another way I stayed in the field throughout my career. Totally. And, I mean, to get on a jet boat uh, and go up the river or down the river in Hell's Canyon and meet a, heli a contracted helicopter crew... And you got your state veterinarians from Idaho, Washington, Oregon, all there. 
and you're set on a, you're put on a team to process bighorns that this group flies in. It's just it's surreal. It's it's like yeah, this is why I went to school. This is what what I want to do. Um, you didn't get to do it every day, but you know a couple times a year was enough. And uh, every time was just something exciting. Um, I don't know if I could mention one or two particularly, uh, you know, uh, particular highlights. Um, yeah, that's, that's a tough one because every one of them was exciting and hard work and long days. Um, very satisfying. Yeah, it's a pretty um, cool game day. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. If if one comes to mind before we're done, I'll I'll bring it up. But every one of them was, and and in that landscape uh, of Hell's Canyon. Oh my gosh! With that backdrop, it's dramatic. Um, yeah. Anything you do in there, yeah, is just uh, you got to pinch yourself. Say, I'm getting paid to do this right now. Yeah, I have a lot of those moments. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, even if it's you know surveying for weeds. Or spraying weeds or whatever. Mm-hmm. I had the fortune of uh, working with bats, surveying for wolves early on when they first started coming into Oregon in there, and bighorn sheep work all in Hell's Canyon. So I did multiple trips into Hell's Canyon. Wow. And every one of them was, was awesome. Yeah, that's a pretty remarkable place. Yep. Yep. So it do is. you think for someone to get where you are now, like, I know you just have a bachelor's, but did a lot of people like kind of coming up have like more education, like a master's or a PhD, or is it still like mostly bachelor's? Oh, no. No, you bring up a good point. I was the last of a generation, and I hit the market at just the right time where mm-hmm. a master's wasn't required. Mm-hmm. Um, I seriously considered going back a few times, but... That was my question, because it sounds yeah. like what you did was like all in could have been your own research project just from yeah. your work, and you could have done that at the same time i was um, just curious it crossed my mind but life life mm-hmm. started and marriage and kids and then buying a house uh, all that got in the way of going back to school yeah. and frankly i was enjoying life too much to want to go back and oh totally and, and oh, do, yeah do if you didn't school. need it i mean and you yeah. were doing the same thing as a whatever that yeah. degree would would bring you most folks cannot do that today yeah. and they haven't been able to for the last 20 plus years because it's become more competitive. Um, and like I say, I was last of an era when you could go in, get a, get a permanent job and do your entire career without going back and getting an advanced degree. And I have several colleagues that are a little older than me and a few that are younger than me that did the same thing. But almost everyone just shortly after that, at a minimum, had a master's degree. And, and throughout my career, I had the pleasure of reviewing master's proposals um, and helping students through their master's programs um, through OSU and University of Idaho. Uh, But nope, I I didn't need it and I didn't do it. Um, Right now is kind of a unique, another unique period where there's more jobs than there are people. So it's it's possible you could get a job right now, Mm -hmm. uh, like in this window where we're sitting right now. Uh, But for the last... 20 years it hasn't been that way but yeah there's definitely so many jobs the the agencies can't hardly fill them all with the with qualified candidate pool that's out there yeah yeah you know i can't speak to some of the disciplines like archaeology and botany and range but i know fisheries wildlife forestry civil culture all those are sitting in this 
this position where there's so many jobs and not enough qualified candidates. And then if someone listens to this podcast and hears that now, and they're just going into college, it may be different four years from now when they oh, get totally. out with their yeah. bachelors. Yeah. Or maybe not. Yeah. Um, so hopefully folks that hear this that are in their third or fourth year of school are like, Hop on yes, the yes, I'm going to get a job <laughs> as soon as I get out. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a good segue though, but um, you know, you've mentioned uh, maybe a couple times before we actually turned on the mic um, of, of hunting with your kids and, and being a mentor as a hunter, but um, you speak to to uh, overseeing some master's projects, and by proxy, I'm sure you were a mentor to some of those some of those people. So, do you have any notable stories or, or moments that you look back on as a mentor, or just as a dad to your kids in the outdoors? Oh, there's a lot in that question. There's a few aspects to it that I could totally address differently. Um, one, being a dad of two wonderful kids that are that were hunting buddies of mine and still are, um, that was very rewarding. My son now, is, he'll be 25 in another month and a half. My daughter's 27, and they're both my favorite hunting partners. They cut their teeth on turkeys. Turkeys <laughs> are great for hunting with kids because they call <laughs> back at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, and it, you, you can call them in and you get to see a lot of them usually and, and mm-hmm. usually you can have success. Uh, we got into the big game era with the kids and they were in high school. The hunting was competing with soccer and dance and friends and all this other stuff. But uh, I think my daughter uh, made hunting a priority with me because she really liked spending time with me. I think this is, yeah. if my kids hear this, they might disagree with me. Roll with it, roll with it. Um, <laughs> That's why she does it. And we had great times because I, from the time she was about four, in a backpack on my back, I'd say, we're going bear hunting. And really, I'm scouting for elk or something. And she has her tiny little bow that's hanging up there on the far right <laughs> on my rack here and a quiver full of arrows. And she's like, do you see any bears? I'm like, not yet. <laughs> Be quiet. Be quiet. We're going to see a bear soon. (laughs) Oh, that brings back some memories And I'd take her out of the pack, and I'd say, let's shoot that rotten stump over there. So we'd shoot the stump with our bows a few times and load her back up. And um, just getting her used to being out there in the woods and not being afraid of it, just, you know, these irrational fears people have of being in the woods, especially kids. Um, My kids never had that. I was like, well, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I think my son, um, he hated getting up early. Okay. And, There's always one. Uh, oh, man. But but when I finally drug his butt out of bed and got him out there, he really enjoyed the hunting. Mm-hmm. And um, and he did well. And he they both have killed mule deer and whitetail, elk, uh, pronghorn, turkeys. My daughter got the caribou. So they've had a good, uh, a lot of experience. A good run before they're even 30. God, a few few times, hopefully someday they'll understand the effort that dad put in to put them in front of an elk on public land and then them miss it. (laughs) Mark, you're getting some nerves here for me. I'm getting some PTSD if my dad is going to hear this and be like, Madeline. And 
I know if I say what's really on my mind, uh-huh. they'll never want to hunt again as long as they live. So Correct. I just keep my mouth shut. Yeah. Say, That's okay. We'll get back on them again. Yeah, we're going to get them. Uh, we're going to get right back on them. Just reload. Reload we'll and we got to go. we got to go right now. And usually we did. And Bailey, I'm sorry, but I'll tell you, she, she used to miss her first shot fairly regularly. Consistently consistent. And then second shot, she'd kill. This okay. happened on a handful of animals. At least a few. But her second shot, she'd have her crap together and, and make a good shot. But good gosh, that first shot, <laughs> I put so much effort into getting us there. And, uh, but no, I still have fun hunting with them. And now, now that they're adults, I've been buying them preference points for big game. Like in Wyoming, they're both sitting on 13 or 14 points for deer, elk, and pronghorn. Um, and eventually I'm going to have to pay non-resident fees to buy them tags and take them hunting over there. I'm dreading that. Just, Just ready to cash in. Yeah, i got to cash in so they can start buying their own darn points. Yeah, come on, Dad, keep <laughs> it up. But I think uh, they both um, have a real good comfort and understanding and appreciation for not just hunting, but the outdoors and wildlife and wild places. And that they'll carry that to their grave. Oh, totally. And my daughter, as a she was a first grade teacher, now a fourth grade teacher. She's going to impart that love for wild things and wild places to hundreds and hundreds of kids throughout her career. And uh, so it was time well spent. Um, and then as far as the part about mentoring or being mentored in the professional setting, um, I think I have mentored quite a few folks, uh, but I can't take credit for their successes. I am really proud of how uh, a lot of folks that I've given advice to or given temporary jobs or, or permanent jobs to over the years have propelled themselves way beyond what I ever did and are higher in different agencies and doing great things. Um, yeah, I'm really proud of a lot of them. And at my retirement party, my official retirement party. Um, I had a lot of parties when I, when I, <laughs> I didn't plan them now. When I left the Forest Service, they had a wonderful celebration because I'd been with the agency for 30 years. And we had a great party down in Baker for me leaving the agency. Mm-hmm. And then when I, three years later, when I left the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, let's see, the first party that week, I just messaged a few people and said, I'm going to Benchies, bench warmers to have a beer on my last day. And like 35 people showed up. <laughs> took over, we took over. Oh, full veggies. Took over the whole bar. And had a great, great one there. And then Fish and Wildlife Service had a nice little intimate uh, party with just us, eight or nine, uh, and spouses and kids. And then the following Saturday, we had a big blowout over at Riverside Park. <laughs> and um, oh my God, uh, people started walking up that I had not seen in 30 years from North Dakota. Uh, Eastern Idaho, uh, Western Oregon, Florida, um, like six people that I hired in 1990, they were in cahoots behind my back that they were going to come and surprise me at this party. And (laughs) they all showed up and yeah, I was in tears when they showed up and just talked about how I had given them their first real opportunity in wildlife or, and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I did the best I could because I was their age. You know, but I had a job and they didn't. And I just picked them up and, um, you know, there's that part of the, of mentoring. But over the years, I really give a lot of credit to my mentors. Um, I spoke with one today, actually. Um, and I was thinking about mentorship and how important it is in our field. 
in forestry, I'm sure it's the same way, where some mentors I've had, they never knew they were my mentor. I watched them. I watched how they perform. Your dad's one of them. He, uh, he's so fun to watch how comfortable he is in front of a group and how he can spin a tail and just his way with words. Yeah, it's pretty wild. A lot of people <laughs> can learn from that. It's like, I aspire to be that comfortable in front of a group someday. Um, and then there's the mentor that you, um, you're you comfortable calling up and saying, I'm at a really important juncture in life. Either I'm going to buy a new house or I'm going to change jobs or I'm going to take this detail into another job. You know you've always been my mentor. What do you think I should do? And um, so you know you've got that mentee-mentor relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, those come about, uh, you build them naturally through respect for somebody, trust for somebody that you come in contact with. I've seen where the agencies have tried to uh, formalize a process. It's like you as a new employee are going to have these two mentors. There. This is your hiring buddy. <laughs> yeah. That's what they do now. Yeah. You're Someone's pulling your paperwork up. This is your person. Oh, God. Occasionally that might work, but <laughs> no. usually it doesn't. You need to latch on to someone that's you trust and you respect and you really look up to and um, and they're interested in making sure you're, you're a success whether their interest is because they just want to be a good person uh, or the they know the resource that they they value is going to benefit from you doing a really good job whether you're a forester or a wildlife or whatever and um, I've had the the good fortune of having an amazing cast of mentors in my life and as I got older uh, toward retirement, after retirement, I've realized how um, there's no there's no hard rules about what a mentor has to be or should be. Um, usually, it's someone in your field that's older than you. But I have incredible mentors that have been so important to me that are younger than me or in different fields. Some older than me, but in different fields. Um, and they've been lifelong mentors or career long mentors anyway. And, uh, those are just, those are priceless relationships. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool to share it. One on like different age between older and then younger people who are coming in with new lenses and new, new point of views and stuff. And then also in different entities just to get some balancing active, all that kind of stuff. So that's pretty cool. Oh yeah, the younger folks that they they take different classes in college. They have different exposures to different constituents in the community. They face different challenges, mm-hmm. and um, I would never be one to say I've been there, done that. I know all that already. Um, I've always been open to learning and saying, "Yeah, you you had a whole different perspective, and it's an important perspective, and I'm going to listen to it and learn from it." And um, yes, several of my mentors are are a decade younger than me. That's pretty cool. So, yep. I'm going to end with Trish's question. Oh, <laughs> so it's funny. So you... lighten, lighten it up. Uh, Trish mentioned that you guys were good friends when oh, we no. talked to her. Yeah. So Trish Wallace, yeah. She requested that we ask you about um, some of your favorite foods, including squirrel brains. Oh, I thought you were going to mention that she beat me in darts one night when no. I was... <laughs> When I had way too many whiskeys. 
Well, now I let that one out. Yeah. <laughs> I said, Mark, you just put yourself see, in that one. It's the only time she's ever beat me in darts. Um, you know, Trish, bless her soul, she's a she's a vegetarian. She has been since childhood. And I'm not. I'm a meat eater. And uh, I think it was a carpool uh, conversation or something we had. And I was telling her about growing up in the South, we hunted gray squirrels, eastern gray squirrels. And they're really good. They're similar to rabbit as far as their texture and flavor um but as a kid <laughs> my dad it would fry the head uh now the skin's off and all but it still had the tongue in it usually the eyes would be out of it but it's rolled in flour and fried mm. and uh, take your fork and crack the cranium and take the brain out you have this mushy little gray morsel I don't remember it being that tasty, but I do remember eating several of them. Yeah, that's just a fun fact. You don't really give a review on, oh, that's a 10 out of 10 taste. When I told Trish that, she almost turned green in the face. What's fu- also funny is she said you were a really good chef, but also she doesn't eat meat, so yeah. we don't know where to take that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny that being a vegetarian, she is really good at cooking meat dishes with meat in them. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I, I cooked the meat for her retirement party. Uh, God, that was a 24-hour commitment. Of <laughs> bris- brisket and smoked pork that I had no idea what I was getting into, but we fed the whole crowd. But she's cooked several dishes with meat in them, chicken or beef or whatever, and they've been delicious. She's a really good cook, but she doesn't eat meat, so she can't even taste the, the huh. dishes while she's doing them. But yeah, she's a great cook. Uh, I can't believe she, I can't believe she brought that up. It's funny how you talked about timelines because I mean we talked to Trish on Tuesday and she was like, you know, I got my timeline. I stay in a position five for to seven years. Yeah, five three to, to five, seven. five to seven years, and here She's you like, are. She's like, I just get bored. I gotta go. And you're like, I just, you know, I'm I'm here to hang around and make sure my stuff gets done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like in that 15 year period here, um, I wasn't doing the same thing all the time. I kept it interesting by doing working on different species, getting involved in different committees, doing different types of projects. So there was enough diversity to keep me excited and oh, interested. Yeah. I think in your field especially. I yeah. Think she was just like, been with the same people. Yeah. Got to move I on, gotta guys. Go. I got to get out of here. No, yeah. I want to do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she had a definitely, definitely different mindset. She was pretty fun to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't be here and not ask about you know, your taxidermy and that is obviously a creative outlet for you, um, as a hunter. So how'd you, how'd you get into that? Oh, so we're, we're sitting here in my shop when there's a little bit of taxidermy on the walls, but there's a, a lot of skulls bit. and Just antlers. A little and... bit. <laughs> wall to wall folks. It's wall to wall. <laughs> Let me preface. We had growing up in that part of Pied- the Piedmont of North Carolina where we didn't have deer. When I did see a deer mount on someone's wall, I was fascinated by it. It's like, someday I want to have a mounted deer on my wall. So now you have. <laughs> One, two, three, five, five. More to count. Yeah. But I just, I've always been fascinated by the art. And it's, I've seen it develop over the years from a very rudimentary, crude thing where a form was made out of pine excelsior. Mm. So shredded, really fine shredded pine mm. wrapped together with twine with a piece of two by four in it. And then some clay or paper mache. And then... Uh, a very toxic uh, tanning of the hide with arsenic. That's why, I swear, for you, decades there were no old taxidermists. They were all dying in their 30s and 40s. Like the radium girls. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then these horrible looking glass eyes that they put in there. 
and that's developed into an amazing art where these artists bring things back to life in all kinds of poses and dioramas and things. I'm a very simple, uh, in my taxidermy is very simple, but I, I like to think it's tasteful. And so in about 95, when I moved here uh, in La, to Lagrange, it was 1995, I decided I was going to start trying taxidermy as a hobby. So for a few years, I bought magazines. It was before YouTube. Bought magazines. I bought uh, VHF tapes, watched them. Nice. And friends that had things they would shoot, shoot that weren't that important to them, it was like, you can practice on this. Or little deer that I would, you know, kill and, and try to... Uh, do taxidermy on them and then uh, I started taking pieces to us uh, to state competitions and having my work critiqued and competing and then there would be workshops associated with those shows those competitions and I would watch an expert mount a whole deer head you know in a an hour and a half there wow. uh, impressive. Well, and, it's a little uh, different than a Bob Ross video yeah. on YouTube <laughs> <laughs> and so my work I think it got decent and then I actually bought a taxidermy license in Oregon and started doing it as a small side business. And after about five years, I did a, a class, a two-on-one class with a guy. He lived in Montana at the time. He actually came to Oregon and taught me and another guy competition quality shoulder mounts for deer, elk, pronghorn, those mm -hmm. kind of things. So we spent eight days in my shop where I used to live in town here and mounted a black-tailed deer, white-tailed deer, a mule deer, a pronghorn and an elk uh, under his supervision. Every little detail down to the finish work and the painting and everything. And mm -hmm. that really taught me a lot and elevated the quality of my work. Um, I don't. I never did go back and compete in the open division or master's division. I, I don't think I was ever good enough to. Um, but I got by and I wasn't... There's only a couple pieces floating around out there that I would be embarrassed to say I did. <laughs> and... <laughs> Those, usually, the capes were poorly cared for, yeah. really poorly cared for. So I, I did the best I could with what I had to work with. Yeah. Otherwise, most of the heads that I've done, I think, look decent. And, you know, they're, they're done mechanically right. And artistically, I think they're, they're solid. Yeah, they're yours to appreciate. Yeah, and then in here, everything you're looking at are mine or my kids. And um, they represent a lot of local... Uh, species in Oregon and in some Africa and Alaska. Uh, one piece from Kyrgyzstan. This is about mid-Asian ibex I got in Kyrgyzstan. Um, You've really been all over. Arizona, uh, Montana, Wyoming. A lot of western states represented in here. Nevada. And uh, no, it's and the reason I, for, my reason for wanting to have these things on my wall is to preserve memories. Totally. I can look at every single one of them. And they're not all trophy animals. Some of them are tiny. But some of those tiniest ones have some of the best memories. Because mm -hmm. I remember specifically me and my kid getting up, you know, that morning and what we saw when we drove out and what we did and what we had for breakfast and what we had for snacks. and um, So it's about memories to me. It's not about bragging, look what all I shot. It's yeah. about um, I have wonderful memories with every single piece in here. And I did it legally and fairly. Um I wouldn't be embarrassed to tell you every detail about every dead thing in here. Yeah, nor should you. And so I'll never understand the person who can poach something or shoot something in the wrong unit or without a tag or at a game farm or behind a big fence and then put it on their wall and and be like, look what I got. Yeah. I just, I don't get that mentality. Yeah. <clears throat> um, 
And then, you know, I guess I take it a step further as far as the challenge goes. My my traditional bows, I could probably be way more successful if I used a rifle on all my hunts. But I choose a longbow with wooden arrows, usually, that I make. And um, I have to be really close. And to me, I give that animal every opportunity to use all of its senses to outsmart me and pick me up and get out of there. Mm -hmm. But occasionally, it all comes together, and I succeed, and it's really satisfying. Yeah. That elk beyond up above your head on the top mm -hmm. there, I shot it between two and three yards. My arrow barely left the bow when it entered the elk. And I was up in the Eagle Cap Wilderness. Um, I was using my longbow with a Douglas fir arrow, and I called that elk in with my mouth all the way around a basin, and it walked right into my lap, and I was able to shoot it at point-blank range. I felt sorry for it for a little bit, and then I thought, that elk just made a mistake, and I, I, it had every chance to smell mm -hmm. me, see me, sense me, but this time it all went right, and, and I got it. Yeah, that's the beauty of the sport. Yeah, 98 times out of 100, they're going to smell you or see you, and it doesn't go that way. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and you're back to square but, one. But I love being surrounded by all these memories and uh, my collections, my axes and my bows. And... Cool. <laughs> A real well, man cave. Yeah, legit. <laughs> well, those are, yeah, those are some awesome stories, so thanks for sharing that mm -hmm. with us. Um, and unless you have any other questions, I'll kind of close out with that yeah, advice thing. Um yeah, as you've listened to some of our podcasts, you know, we like to, the whole purpose of this, and you and Catherine have kind of touched on it, the the beauty of us starting this was just to let people walk down memory lane and get advice and insight from people who've who've done it, done it all, and um, are on the, the later part of their career and enjoying a whole different portion of life in their retirement, so as you, as you mentor and as you look to, to people like us, you know, what's some advice um, that you give to outdoor goers, hunters? Whatever it may be, um, it, it would it would probably differ based on what agency or role the person decides to go into. But if you're in public service, I would say so. With any state or federal agency, um, keep in mind that you are a public servant, and always remember that. And um, that doesn't mean every Joe Blow off the street can come in and say, "You work for me, you should be doing this." No, you need to understand what your role is as a public servant and uh, where you fit into the bigger picture and always keep the public uh, in mind as a customer and you're there to serve them in addition to representing the resource you're, you know, that you're working for. And so a good example is when I made it a rule. Anytime I would get a phone call, I would never tell the person, that's not my job, not my role, we don't do that here. Um, you got the wrong person. I would always, because I eventually I understood who did everything related to forestry, fire, wildlife, fish, weeds, range, livestock in my area. I either knew them all personally or I knew the agency or the phone number. And mm -hmm. so if someone called me and was like, there's cattle walking out here on my land, da da da. I mean, I couldn't say, well, that's nowhere near National Forest. Not my problem. Call somebody else and hang up. No. Yeah. I would explain, well, I'm with the National Forest System, but you need to talk to da-da, and I would give them the phone number, say, this is who you need to call that can address that. 
Um, a lot of confusion has always been between ODFNW, Fish and Wildlife Service, and Forest Service. So people would call with, we found an eagle that's injured on the side of the road. What do we do? It's like, call U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, or I'll call them for you and tell them to, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so never leave the public hanging and just leave it up to them to go figure out who to call. Because obviously they found you some way. You give them the respect of uh, letting them know that you're there to help and you're going to send them down the right path. That That's one thing. And then just understanding what your role is and not ever minimizing that role. Um, it takes years sometimes to figure out, uh, you know, this. I'm here to do this job. And like when I was in the the wildlife program manager job for the or role for the Forest Service here, um, I finally understood that um, my role was a recommending role, not a decision-making role, and that I represented wildlife, and my job was to make sure decisions were made based on the best available data and science, and that the public understood why we were making those decisions or not, you know, and um, providing the decision-makers with the right information. And then um, helping my biologist understand uh, the technical standards of what they were supposed to be doing and why. Um, so it's a good place to be when you finally figure out, I know why I'm in this role. Because a lot of my career, it was confusing and challenging. Yeah. And it's like, I think I'm supposed to be doing this, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. um, but eventually, you should get to a point where you really have a good understanding of why, why you're there and what you're, what you're there to do. Does that make sense? Sound advice. Okay. We can take that wherever we go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Mark. This is a pretty spectacular place, and thanks for sharing in the stories and company. Thanks. Well, thanks for doing this podcast. I've listened to your other episodes, and they've been really interesting, so looking forward to listening to the rest of them. Right on. Listeners become interviewers. Listen in, folks. If you want to be interviewed, keep listening. (laughs) All right. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. As always, please like, subscribe, or leave us a review, and remember to get outside.